It's hard to be a teenager, and it's hard to be a parent of a teenager too. But clinical psychologist Dr. Lisa Demore says adolescent distress has changed over the past 25 years. Somewhere along the way, she says, we've become afraid of letting our teens be unhappy. Anxiety and stress and anger and disappointment are not only inevitable, they can be good for teenagers. And she offers parents strategies for tolerating big emotions in our teens and how to cope when it happens. Her new book is called The Emotional Lives of Teenagers, Raising Connected, Capable and Compassionate Adolescents. And Dr. Lisa Demore joins me now. Hi. Hi, thank you so much for having me. Great to meet you. Why did you feel compelled to write this book now? Um, There were two things at work. One is, obviously, I was writing it as the pandemic was winding down. And having practiced for a very long time, I had never seen anything um, land on teenagers in such a painful way. So I was thinking a lot about the surge in distress in teenagers but then the other, and, and this is um, very true in the U.S. I'm not sure. I assume it's also true in New Zealand, yeah. but you'll let me know if there's some, you know, kind of texture to it that's different. At least in the U.S., the way we talk and think about mental health had actually skidded pretty far away from how we understand it as psychologists. And um, what I mean by that is so often in the discourse around mental health, Being mentally healthy is now equated with feeling good or calm or relaxed. And and that's not, I mean, those are nice things, but that's not how we think about what mental health is. Mm. Um, To psychologists, mental health is about having feelings that match the situation and then managing those feelings well. And so it felt really important, especially in the context of teenagers having gone through such a hard time, to actually make the case that distress on its own is not grounds for concern. And often it's actually a sign that the teenager works perfectly. Like if something horrible has happened, like a pandemic, we expect distress and to really try to put our attention on coping and and how teenagers manage when distress arrives, because with or without a pandemic, teenagers are going to get upset and we want to help them manage it well. Why then have we become so uncomfortable with letting our teens have uncomfortable feelings? So I, I th- throw out a few ideas in the book. Um, and there's one, there's also, I think, a quality like where there can be almost a cyclical um, nature to this. And so what, in the book, what I suggest is, you know, one, um, the wellness industry has really got a lot of money caught up in selling the idea that you can get to a Zen place and mm. stay there. Um, so I, I'm all for wellness as a way to maintain a sense of emotional equilibrium and wellness practices, but I'm not on the side of suggesting that if you just do all the right things, you don't have to feel unhappy. That's not actually how life works. Um, And we also have data showing teenagers actually do feel worse over time than they have in the past. And so I think that that has raised the alarm about distress. But the cyclical thing that I think has emerged maybe even more since the book came out is that there are all of these really, you know, terrifying headlines about adolescent mental health and ongoing adolescent mental health crisis, which is real. But I think the heavy emphasis, at least in the American media, on alarming data or alarming reports, I think that 
stands to reason in my book, like is going to make parents more anxious about their kids feeling any distress. Because, you know, if this is your first teenager, how do you tell the difference between a garden variety meltdown that teenagers have always had and an adolescent mental health crisis, especially if you're looking at headlines all the time about teenagers in distress? So how do you tell the difference? So there's a couple of things that actually are very um, useful. So typical adolescent distress comes and goes. A normally developing teenagers' emotions are kind of all over the map. You know, they're really upset one minute and then they're totally gleeful the next. Um, it can be a little bit, you know, people talk about it like a roller coaster. But if you're on the roller coaster, that means everything's going as we fully expect it would. Mm -hmm. So we only worry if a teenager's mood goes to a concerning place and stays there, if they get low and they're low for two or three or four days, or if they're paralyzed by anxiety over days, or if they're just horrendously angry and unpleasant, you know, day over day, that's not typical adolescence. And that that's grounds for concern. So that's one way to know. The other thing I want adults to watch for is what I call costly coping. So a young person who's managing distress, but in a way that's actually going to come with a price tag. Uh -huh. So maybe they're distressed and they're smoking a lot of marijuana or they're distressed and they're self-harming as a way to cope. So those things will actually bring relief, but those are not the kind of coping that we want teenagers to be turning yeah. to. Okay. You actually say something that we don't hear very often, which is that anxiety can be healthy. Distress can be healthy. What purpose does it serve? So anxiety is our internal alarm system. It tells us something's not right. And healthy anxiety is anxiety that is activated when there's a threat and when the anxiety is proportional to the threat. So for example, you know, it's, it's summer here. I think you guys are still in school, right? You're yeah. in the middle of the yeah, yeah. Okay. So this is a better example for you than for where I am. Um, say that your kid has a huge test tomorrow and they have not even cracked a book. They haven't even started studying. We want to see anxiety under <laughs> that condition. It's actually more healthy for a teenager to get anxious under those conditions, for a teenager to feel relaxed under those conditions. And we want to see anxiety in proportion to what's wrong. So we don't want them to have a panic attack, right? It doesn't warrant that. But they should be anxious enough that they want the anxiety to stop and they study to make it stop. Mm -hmm. And I think that like that's like, the, you know, you could give 40 examples like that, right? You know, if your kid's best friend moves away, we expect to see distress. It's weird if we don't, you know, that those are easy examples. But I think that um, the thing that's so critical to underline in that is that the way we see it as psychologists so often distress equals mental health. You know, the presence of anxiety, the presence of sadness under mm. particular conditions is proof that the child or the teenagers actually operates beautifully. And so we have to work all the time against, you know, wellness messaging or headline messaging, suggesting that the presence of distress is always a sign that something's really mm. wrong. So interesting. You write that it's actually a myth that difficult emotions are bad for teens, which is kind of an interesting issue given the stories we see about how far parents are going to protect teens, in the US at least. There was a story that came out that they, some parents don't want to let their children read books about slavery in case they feel uncomfortable. Do trends like that worry you? They do. And um, I actually talk about in my book um, some of the literature on reading, some of the academic research literature on reading literature and literature that is evocative that moves people 
And we have really good science showing that it's actually what creates empathy, that reading about other people's difficulties and, you know, art is more powerful to create empathy than getting just bland historical facts. So that's concerning. Um, I'm also concerned because a lot of how teenagers grow is by grappling with painful experiences, whether it's a breakup, you know, and going through that and like learning more about themselves and learning more about their relationships. Or, you know, if a teenager does something dumb, you know, if they cheat and they get caught, um, you know, if they have to really face the music on that, that's how you keep a kid from doing it again. Mm -hmm. So there's such um, value in, in distress in terms of helping us know how things are going, helping us um, learn our own depths, helping us develop empathy for others. You know, of course, distress can go too far. You know, we, we and that's when we start to make a diagnosis. But most distress is orienting and growth giving for all of us and probably especially for teenagers. I'm talking to clinical psychologist Dr. Lisa Moore. Her book is called The Emotional Lives of Teenagers, Raising Connected, Capable and Compassionate Adolescents. Uh, there's another myth that you um, want to bust, which is that intense teenage emotions lead to poor judgment. Yeah, you know, that, that's um, there's an exception to this rule, as there is with anything. But hmm. most of the time, and I'll get to the exception, most of the time, Emotions help us make better decisions. And I I share in my book a, a wonderful metaphor shared with me by a, a colleague, Terry, who I cite in the back of the book, um, where she says, you know, it's best to think of our emotions as one member of our personal board of directors, right? So if we think about we all have a personal board of directors and, you know, the seats on that board are held by our obligations, our interests, you know, logistical considerations, financial considerations. Yeah. And and then also like how we feel about things like that, that has to seat on the board too. And the way my friend Terry tells it, she says, you know, emotions have a seat on the board. They do not chair the board and they very rarely have the deciding vote. <laughs> and I think that's just perfect. So that's how we want teenagers to think about their emotions, that they are not running the show, but they're usefully informative. The exception that is true for adolescents is that when teenagers are in socially or emotionally charged situations, like at a party where there's drinking or something like that, their reasoning is not as good as it is when they're in um, more tame conditions. And so the way we refer to it technically is that, you know, when your kid is in a tame condition, when it's 4 p.m. and you're saying, like, what are you doing tonight? We call that cold cognition, that their reasoning is good, they're very rational, or they make good choices or they have good ideas. When they get to the party, what we call is hot reasoning kicks in, which is, you know, they, mm -hmm. they want to be going along with what's happening. It's exciting. There's, you know, sort of social and emotional pressures. And so the same kid who at four o'clock was like, oh, no, no, I won't be drinking, you know, at nine o'clock would be like, sure, I'll have one. Yeah. Right. And so, you know, one of the challenges with teenagers is to, you know, just acknowledge like that they can really be of two minds. And then also under cold cognition settings like you know four o'clock in the afternoon to help them make a plan that is realistic under hot cognition uh -huh. settings so you know if they say no no i'm not going to drink and you say that's fantastic what's the plan for if you get to the party and the kid you like is drinking or the kid you know like everybody you want to hang out with is drinking like how are you going to stick with this you know current 
um, commitment to not drink and to really come up with a strategy because you don't really want your kid trying to figure that out on the spot. Love that. Um, I've got four kids and each child I've got a little bit better when they're young of remembering that the, the toddler's brain is doing its own thing and that I need to be extra patient and just give love no matter how unreasonable they're being. Is there value in thinking the same way about the teenage brain, that um, that it's not them, it's their brains? Does that actually help in a moment where you're clashing? It should. I like it. Um, and what we do know about the neurology of the adolescent, especially the early adolescent, you know, sort of around ages 12, 13, 14, um, is that their brain is remodeling and becoming faster and more efficient and more powerful but it remodels in the order that it developed initially from the back to the front and the emotions are in the back and the reasoning's in the front. And so these poor teenagers, I talk about it in terms of like a gawky brain, you know, they go through a period of time where if they get really stirred up, their emotions can override everything and kind of crash the whole system. I think the challenge with teenagers is by their nature, a lot of the friction can feel much more personal. Mm -hmm. Um, I have a section of the book called Why Your Teen Hates How You Chew. And uh, (laughs) (laughs) they really do. And it's about um, what we call technically separation individuation, where kids are trying to, you know, develop their own sense of identity. I call it a brand, you know, that they're working out. Yeah. And, you know, the way they go about it is often by hating everything we do. And, um, you know, I lay out in the book exactly how this works and how it can be most helpful to respond. But I think it feels really painful and it feels really personal to the adult. And so you can have a willingness to appreciate that this is all developmentally typical and healthy and, you know, neurologically driven. But, you know, in at your house, when your kid's telling you you look like a dork, you know, it's, it's very hard to remember all that. Mm-hmm. We um, had a good discussion with... Kevin Kelly, the um, Wired magazine founder, um, and he, his his uh, proverb on failure was fail small in order to fail forward and fail better. Now, we don't want our kids to fail, really, but failure is such a great teacher. So does that sort of um, principle form a good approach for parents? Let your kids fail small and, and, and sort of treat that experience as data? Yeah, I think that's exactly right. And I think You know, the goal with teenagers is to put them in positions where they learn and they can learn without irreversible consequences. Um, So, you know, I think about I'm I'm the mother of two teenagers. I've stopped really supervising their packing when we go places. (laughs) Yeah. Right. And it's like it's interesting because sometimes they, you know, don't bring something they really wish they'd had. And I mean, this is a very minor thing, but I think it's also a good example where, you know, it's not the end of the world. They have to deal with whatever shoes they brought. Like they won't make that mistake again. You know, so I think the goal all the time is to find situations and create conditions where teenagers can learn the hard way, but we just don't want them to learn the hard way on things where they can't recover from it. What do teenagers tell you that they want from their parents? They want two things. First of all, they really do like us and they do want our company. They don't always want our agendas and our questions. (laughs) And I think that's a really important thing for adults to know that I think 
so much of being an adolescent is that you are surrounded by adults with an agenda, whether it's your teacher or your coach or, you know, your boss. And they do like the company of adults, but they really like it. I wrote a piece ages ago about, you know, what do teenagers want? Potted plant parents. You know, they want us present and quiet <laughs> and, you know, not trying to advance some program. And then the other thing they want is when they tell us they're upset, when they bring us pain, what they want more than anything else, and probably often the only thing they want is just for us to be empathic just for us to say, oh my gosh, I'm sorry, like that really stinks, or of course you're upset. They very rarely are looking for solutions. They very rarely are wanting our questions or our guidance. You know, usually the things they bring us are complicated, and if they could have solved it, they would have. And and I think um, if you do have good advice, that's great, but I would still hold it until after you've just straight up empathized with your teenager. It's really hard to be a teenager. And then you can say, do you want my help? You know, or do you just need to vent? And I promise you, 99.4% of the time, teenagers will say, I, ju I just want to vent. I just want to tell you what happened. You said the best parenting advice you ever got came from inside a chocolate bar wrapper. <laughs> it's true. Um, that's not in the book. That's funny. Um, or maybe it is in the book. I can't remember anymore. Um, it's, it was a dove chocolate wrapper. It said, don't talk about it, be about it. <laughs> yeah. And I love that. And I live in the American Midwest where we try to, you know, just live our values as opposed to announce our values. I don't know how good we are at it all the time, mm. but I think, you know, this book is so much about supporting healthy coping. You know, two of the five chapters are about strategies for coping. In teenagers, one chapter is about helping them express emotions, another is about helping them tame emotions, and I think that's all well and good. But I think mostly the way that we teach coping is by how we cope in front of our kids. You know, it's it's um it's one thing if we come home from a long day and we're like, oh my gosh, today was horrible. Like, where's the wine? Mm -hmm. You know, and it's another thing if we come home and say, you know, today was terrible. Like, I'm going for a walk. Does anybody want to come with me? You know mm -hmm. that. That's really um, where we teach our kids how to cope. And why do they hate how we chew? <laughs> okay, so here's the deal. Um, right around 13 or 14, probably more 13 for girls, 14 for boys, um, teenagers decide that they really want to start to carve out their own identity. And, and so they start to be very aware, like they're very entangled with our identities because they've been children all this time. Mm. So anything that we do that um, is unlike how they see themselves becoming, right, is just not part of the, the emerging brand they're working mm -hmm. on. So maybe the way we chew, the way we blink, the way we, you know, the, the what we want to wear to eighth grade orientation, you know, like whatever it is, um, it's just mortifying to them because and, and aggravating to them because it's still so entangled with their identity. But the other problem at this time is, Anything that we do that is like how they see themselves becoming, right? Like, you know, maybe we we're, we run and they run too. Or maybe um, we, you know, love Beyonce and they decide they love Beyonce. Well, now this is also antagonizing because we're stepping on their brand. So the upshot of having a kid in this phase of development is anything you do that is unlike how they see themselves becoming aggravates them. And anything you do that is like how they see themselves becoming aggravates them 
which means that we just go through a period where we're just entirely aggravating. Like there's nothing we can do that does not rub our kid the wrong way. So my goal in spelling all this out was really to help depersonalize it for adults. And the guidance I offer, you know, when your kid's in this phase, and most kids will do this, you know, go through this phase, my guidance is just to say to them, look, like, you can be with me in one of three ways. You can be fun, which is my favorite. You can be polite, which I will, you know, that's great. Or you can tell me that you need some space, but you can't be a jerk to me or mm-hmm. anybody else. And then, you know, once they start to consolidate a sense of identity, it usually settles down and and they're, they're nicer yeah. <laughs> and um, don't mind how we dress so much or chew. <laughs> Just a quick word on gender differences, because I know you, you say that, um, well, when you when you look at the research, you found that boys express more anger in primary school, but the girls express more in adolescence. They express it in the form of disdain. <laughs> what, what do you make of that? So the way the funding worked out, I just, and this is where I just so love my colleagues for asking mm-hmm. the questions. So, so you have it right. So boys express more anger and aggression when they're younger, girls express more anger in adolescence. The way it actually works is um, there's one form of negativity that girls outmatch boys on all the way through development, and it is disdain. Um, And, you know, it's a very um, interesting finding because when I went to write the book, I thought that the story I would tell is, you know, boys have to be tough and angry. Girls get, you know, only get to be, you know, sad and vulnerable And that really wasn't what I found, you know, that there's actually plenty of anger that girls express, especially at home. Um, One asterisk, and this is American data, but I'm sure there's, you know, similar patterns where you in New Zealand, um, girls of color, girls who are black, do not have the latitude to safely express anger in our culture, that white girls, um, that they are disproportionately disciplined at school. Mm. um, And, you know, and same for, I mean, black boys of color, it's, you know, are subject to lethal police violence, um, whether, you know, at, at much higher rates than than white boys of the same age. And so, you know, it's very um, dangerous. It's And it's a different kind of danger if you are Black in our culture to express um, even assertion, probably. So, you know, this is, this is why it's such a, it's such a, um, important humbling and and valuable experience to write books is you you know you think you're going to say one thing and then you get to the research and it tells you a a different story thank you for the work that you've put into this book uh fantastic so much good stuff in there it's called the emotional lives of teenagers raising connected capable and compassionate adolescents and i've been speaking to clinical psychologist dr lisa demore who i'm sure choose just fine thanks lisa Thank you so much. I sure I'm sure you chewed just fine also. <laughs>